Chapter Thirty Three of Northwest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Northwest by Harold Bindloss. Chapter Thirty Three. Sir James approves. The sun was low, but the light was good, and Jimmy's party, crossing a hillside, saw a long plume of smoke. The smoke moved, and when it melted, the rumble of a distant freight train rolled up the valley. After a time, they saw telegraph posts, a break in the rocks, and two or three small houses. Then their fatigue vanished, and all went fast, but Jimmy was sorry for Dillon, whose mouth was tight. Jimmy thought Laura waited at the railroad, and Frank must tell her Stannard would not come back. Moreover, she must soon know Stannard had shot the game warden and was willing for Jimmy to pay. When they reached the bottom of the hill, he stopped Dillon. "'I expect Laura has got a cruel knock, but perhaps we can save her some extra pain. If you take the line you think will hurt her least, I'll play up, and you can trust Deering.' Dillon said nothing, but gave Jimmy a grateful look. Half an hour afterwards they pushed through a belt of trees and saw a party waiting by the railroad. It was obvious the telegrams had arrived. Although the people were some distance off, Jimmy picked out Margaret, who stood by a man he did not think was Jardine. The bush ranchers did not wear furs like his. By and by he distinguished Mrs. Dillon and Mrs. Jardine, graham the section hand and a police trooper but they were not important and he speculated about the stranger until when the track was not far off he saw a light margaret's companion was sir james leyland jimmy frowned his uncle's arrival was awkward for he had rather hoped to work on margaret's emotion and carry her away in fact, he had wondered whether to take her boldly in his arms might not be a useful plan. Now the plan would not work, although when he stopped in front of Margaret he saw she was moved. The blood came to her skin and her glance was very kind. She wore an old fur cap and a soft deerskin jacket. In fact, her clothes were a rancher's daughter's clothes but somehow she was marked by a touch of dignity. She gave Jimmy her hand, and he turned to his uncle. "'You know Miss Jardine, sir?' "'It looks like that,' Sir James replied with a smile. "'Since you are my nephew, I felt I ought to know your friends. Then Miss Jardine was kind, and seeing my curiosity, helped to throw some light upon your romantic adventures.' Jimmy gave Margaret a grateful look and laughed. "'I expect you were puzzled, sir?' "'To some extent I was puzzled,' Sir James agreed. "'I'm a sober and perhaps old-fashioned business man. The golden days when I was young and rash are gone, but one recaptures a reflection of their vanished charm.' "'Ah,' said Jimmy, "'I knew you were human.' No days were golden for Uncle Dick. 
I expect you know we jarred? Dick indicated something like that, but he has a number of useful qualities. Perhaps they're inherited qualities, because I think one or two are yours. For example, I went to see your ranch. You have made good progress on sound business lines, although chopping trees is obviously a strenuous job. Do you know much about ranching? Jimmy inquired. I do not. Miss Jardine thought I ought to see the ranch, and her father enlightened me. Margaret blushed, and Sir James smiled. Friends are useful, Jimmy, so long as one's friends are good. But we mustn't philosophize. They are cooking some food for you at the post office, and the station agent has agreed to stop the Vancouver Express. He imagines the train will arrive before very long. They went to the post office, and soon afterwards the train rolled down the gorge. Jimmy helped Margaret up the steps, gave Peter his awkward thanks, and jumped on board. By and by the cars sped past a small stone hut, and he wondered whether he was the man who had not long since stolen down at night to meet the section hand. When they reached the hotel, the guests Jimmy had known were gone, and a lonely stranger occupied a room. The clerk stated they would shut down for the winter as soon as the party went, but dinner would be served as usual in the big dining room. Jimmy, refreshed by a hot bath, dressed with luxurious satisfaction. To wear clean, dry clothes, and no others would cook his food, was something new. When he went downstairs, Sir James was in the rotunda. "'Now you are the fashionable young fellow I expected to meet,' he remarked with a twinkle. "'You see, Dick drew your portrait.' "'Oh, well,' said Jimmy. I expect I bothered Dick, and perhaps he was a better friend than I thought. All the same, I hope to persuade you the portrait was something of a caricature. Sir James gave him a thoughtful glance. It is possible. When you came down the hill at Green River, carrying your heavy pack, your mouth tight and your eyes fixed, I knew my nephew. Sometimes, when the cheap mill engine stopped, and your father put down his pen and took off his coat, he looked like that. Well, it's long since I have got a title I did not particularly want. But after all, we are new arrivals, and the primitive vein is not yet run out. He stopped, and resumed, Mrs. Dillon is in the drawing-room, but we must wait for Miss Jardine. She and her father are my guests. You are kind, but I thought them my guests, sir. Sir James smiled. You are rather dull, Jimmy. After all, I am the head of your house. They went to the dining room, and at the door Jimmy stopped. Margaret and Jardine crossed the belt of polished wood between the pillars, but now Margaret was not dressed like a bush girl. The deerskin jacket was gone, her clothes were fashionable, and her skin shone against the fine dark-colored material. Yet she was marked by the grace and balance one gets in the woods, and Jimmy thought her step like a mountain deer's. 
Then he saw his uncle studied him, and he crossed the floor. Mrs. Dillon, Frank, and Deering came in, but although Sir James was an urbane host, sometimes the talk got slack. Laura had not come down, and another occupied Stannard's chair. The stranger Jimmy had remarked dined alone, some distance off, but when Mrs. Dillon got up, he joined the group. "'You agreed to give me an interview,' he said to Sir James. "'That is so,' Sir James replied. "'You wanted to see my nephew, I think, and since we may talk about Stannard, I would like Mr. Deering to join us.' They went to the rotunda, and the stranger pulled out some documents. He was old and rather fat, but his clothes were fastidiously neat, and his glance was keen. "'You know I'm Mason, and my London address is on my card,' he said. "'The card does not state my occupation, but I lend money.' "'I imagined something like that,' said Sir James. "'Stannard was your partner?' "'He was my agent. Stannard belonged to exclusive sporting clubs I could not join. But perhaps this is not important.' I understand you are satisfied he is dead?" Deering nodded. "'Nothing made of flesh and blood could stand for his plunge down the rocks. Since he was a famous mountaineer, I expect you thought his carelessness strange. "'I have some grounds to think you could account for it,' said Deering, dryly. "'We will talk about this again.' said Mason, and turned to Sir James. "'Mr. Leyland owes me a large sum. I have bought his notes.' Sir James studied the documents and gave them to Jimmy, who admitted the account was accurate. "'Very well,' said Sir James. "'My nephew meets his bills. The interest is high, but he must pay for his extravagance.' Before I write you a check, I want to see your agreement with Stannard, and would like some particulars. Mason gave him a document, and when Jimmy stated that he knew Stannard's hand, resumed, Stannard joined me some years since, at a time when he was awkwardly embarrassed. The combine had advantages. Stannard had qualities I had not. His friends were fashionable sporting people. For all that, he was bankrupt, and I supplied him with money. Exactly, said Sir James. Still, perhaps Stannard's agreeing to tout for you was strange. My nephew thought him a fastidious gentleman. There's another thing. Since he was willing to exploit his friends, did you not imagine he might cheat you? Mason smiled. Stannard dared not cheat me, and perhaps I can give Mr. Deering the light he wants. I knew something about Stannard that, had others known, would have broken him. When we made our agreement, he declared the person he had injured was recently dead, and the risk he ran was gone. Perhaps he was sincere, but sometimes I doubt. Not long since, when he began to keep back sums I ought to have got, I made inquiries and found out that another knew. In fact, it looked as if Stannard were buying the fellow's silence with my money. Had he been frank, 
I might have broken the extortioner, but he was not frank. I think he knew he had deceived me about the agreement and was afraid. Anyhow, he tried to meet the demands until— I think I see, said Deering. You do not yet know all Stannard's plans, and now they're not important. I expect we can take it for granted that he imagined the demands could not long be met. Then he saw the police had found out his part in the shooting accident, and he went down the rocks. It looks like that, Mason agreed. Deering turned to Jimmy. Jimmy's look was stern, and his brows were knit. Deering thought he saw a light, but he said nothing, and Sir James got up. "'If you will go with me to the office, Mr. Mason, I will write you a check.' They went off, and soon afterwards Dillon joined Jimmy. "'Laura wants to see you,' he said in a disturbed voice. "'She knows Stannard shot Douglas.' and it's now obvious he meant you to pay. But I rather think that's not all. She talks about her not being justified in marrying me. The thing's ridiculous. If Stannard was a crook, she's not accountable, but my arguments don't carry much weight. Perhaps you can help. You agreed to play up. I'll try, said Jimmy, and went to the drawing room. Nobody but Laura was about, and her forlorn look moved him. Her face was pinched, and all her color was gone, but she gave Jimmy a level glance. "'You know I'm sorry,' he said, and taking her cold hand, resumed with some embarrassment, "'Frank's my friend, and you were very kind. Not long since, I thought—' "'You thought you were my lover?' said Laura, in a quiet voice. "'You were lucky because you were not, but had you agreed to go back to the cotton mill, I might have married you. Now you know my shabbiness.' "'I know nothing like that,' Jimmy declared. "'I do, however, know I owe you much. You were the first to warn me where my extravagance led. Now I want to help.' "'Ah!' said Laura. You are generous. I was willing to cheat you, and it's plain my father was not your friend. Jimmy studied her and thought her afraid. In fact, he began to see why she had sent for him. Laura was keen. She knew something, but he imagined she did not know all. Anyhow, he was not going to enlighten her. "'You mustn't exaggerate the importance of the shooting accident,' he said. "'I and Mr. Stannard used our rifles. "'The night was dark, and I imagined I had hit the warden. "'I expect Mr. Stannard had no grounds to think the unlucky shot was his. "'Until recently the police believed the shot was mine.' "'Laura was quiet for a few moments, and then with an effort looked up. My father knew the rocks. He was a famous mountaineer. Yet when the police sergeant ordered him to stop, he went down the bank. After all, his carelessness was not very strange, Jimmy replied. 
Mr. Stannard was leader and had borne a heavy strain. In fact, we were all exhausted, and our nerve was gone. Then the police came out of the mist, the sergeant shouted, and Mr. Stannard knew they claimed he had shot the warden. He was startled and, so to speak, mechanically stepped back. He stopped, for although his object was good, he knew Laura's cleverness. He did not know if he had altogether banished her doubts, but she gave him a grateful look. "'Frank is your friend,' she said in a quiet voice. "'He wants me to marry him. Are you satisfied I ought not to refuse?' "'Why, of course I'm satisfied,' Jimmy declared. "'You had nothing to do with the shooting accident. You were my friend before Frank was.' I hope we're friends for good. To refuse to marry Frank is ridiculous. Since I'm persuaded, you ought not to doubt. Laura gave him her hand. You are staunch, Jimmy, but I'm tired, she said, and let him go. In the hall, Jimmy met Sir James, who said, I am going for a quiet smoke. Will you join me? not for a time sir since i arrived i've been strenuously occupied doing things i ought now i'm going to do something i want to do for example sir james inquired i'm going to talk to margaret i hope to persuade her to marry me when i suggested our taking a smoke my object was to inquire about your friendship for miss jardine after all, I am your trustee. I hope you approve my plan, sir, Jimmy rejoined. You know where to stop, Sir James remarked with a twinkle. Perhaps my approval carries more weight than you think, because had I not approved, Miss Jardine would not have agreed. Then you have talked to her about it, said Jimmy with keen surprise. Not at all. Miss Jardine is not dull. I soon saw she understood my importance, but did not mean to use her charm. Her friendliness was marked by some reserve. In fact, it was plain she acknowledged my business was to judge if she were the girl for you, and she would not persuade me. Well, I liked her pride, and although we did not talk about it, I rather think she knew I did approve. "'Thank you, sir,' said Jimmy, with a grateful look. Sir James put his hand on Jimmy's arm. "'When I started from Bombay, I was bothered about you. Dick had found out something about Stannard, and he imagined that Miss Stannard was his accomplice. "'Miss Stannard didn't know Stannard's occupation.' She is not accountable for her father. That is so, Sir James agreed. I think Miss Stannard a charming girl, but she was not the girl for you. Leylands are manufacturers, and your job is to control a big industry. Miss Stannard's is to cultivate her social talents and amuse herself. Margaret Jardine, however, is our sort. She's staunch and sincere. You know her pluck and all she risked for you. 
You want a wife like that, and I wish you luck. Jimmy found Margaret in the drawing room. Mrs. Dillon had gone off with Laura, and Jimmy advanced resolutely. At Green Lake I asked you to marry me, and you refused. Yet you knew I loved you, and perhaps I had some grounds to think— The blood came to Margaret's skin. I did know, Jimmy, but to marry you because I stopped the trooper was another thing. Now you're ridiculous. All the same, in some respects, your refusal was justified. My drawbacks were plain. For all you knew, I was an extravagant wastrel, and the police were on my track. Since I mustn't urge you, I was forced to be resigned. Sometimes you are rather dull, Margaret remarked, and smiled. Well, I'm not forced to try for resignation now. I was something of an extravagant fool, but the police will leave me alone. The police were not the obstacle, said Margaret in a quiet voice. Jimmy laughed. It looks like that. The trooper who tried to catch us did not bother you long. If Sir James was the obstacle, he's, so to speak, removed. You have conquered him and he declared a few minutes since that you were the girl for me. He's a kind old fellow. Don't you think you ought to indulge him? He reached down and took her hands. I want you, Margaret. My extravagance is done with. I'm going back to undertake my proper job, and I need your help. Then I must try to help, said Margaret, and Jimmy took her in his arms. The End End of chapter 33 Recording by Roger Moline End of Northwest by Harold Bindloss